Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today has said that democracy begins at home, and it's a belief that she's sought to live her life by. Imadeep Kaur is the co-founder of Civic Square, and her mission focuses on the neighborhood and how we can build resilience rooted in local development. Imi has previously been acknowledged as Asian Businesswoman of the Year and received the prestigious Ashoka Fellowship last year. With a dream of safety and security for all, Imi continues to drive change in her home city of Birmingham and beyond. Imi, welcome to Changemakers. A pleasure to have you on the show, not least because I've seen at first hand the absolutely brilliant work that you've done within within Birmingham. Introduce Civic Square for us and the whole idea of shaping regenerative futures. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real delight to be here again. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to come and tell you a bit more about how the work has developed from Impact Hub Birmingham. But Civic Square is just really based on, on a, a premise that as a society, we're going through a huge transition. We're going from a transition with the natural world, with what we've done to contribute to climate breakdown, from digital technologies and many other things. And we know that large transitions need equally bold and imaginative responses. And my work over the last five or 10 years has shown me that when people and communities are at the heart of that, then that work is immeasurably better. And all of human history has shown that when we have the tools and the space and the imagination and the permission to start to invent the future, we can come through massive areas of change and challenge and can really design uh, incredible futures. And to finish, I think on that, there is a key question for us now as to the layer of the regenerative futures, which is we need to find a way to live in relationship with the natural world where we're both able to thrive as humanity and we're able to not keep overshooting what Earth has given to us as a gift. And so that's at the heart of the work we're doing. And, and what I like about the, the ideas that you talk about is that obviously a lot of it plays into the big picture, the big, big issues, the planet, climate. But it begins with the neighbourhood, something very personal, something that feels very much part of our lives in a emotional sense, something of a highly relatable sense. Introduce that concept of of the neighbourhood and why it is so powerful in, in your work. Absolutely. I think the idea of the neighbourhood is is something that we can all resonate with whatever we imagine that to be, whether it's the whole of a place name or a postcode or a corner of where you live. Everyone's got a story about the neighbourhood that they grew up in, what it meant for them. And I think from a from a sort of wider lens, for me, it's particularly interesting because I think it's both a unit of change that's small enough and big enough to really see change happen. And in a time where we are almost overwhelmed by the scale of change and the scale of transition we need to make, actually, there is a helpful contribution to be made by work like ours to a wider picture of showing neighbourhoods that are coming together to think about all of the different things that we are going to need. And I think in the last year through COVID-19, that became more important than ever. We started to realise Actually, people were living or dying, depending on the neighbourhoods they lived in. People were able to understand the importance of what is five or 10 minutes away from you, what support you might need, your neighbours, the infrastructure you have around you. And we're coming back into a real stark understanding of what that might mean. So I think it's both an incredibly inspiring and everyday thing that we can imagine and experience and 
it also presents us with a, a big opportunity. I'm going to move on to, to COVID in a minute, but before I do, I mean, tell us about your own neighbourhood experience. About that, I mean, why why it speaks to you on a very personal level? Is, is was this something about about growing up? Was it something that I mean, what why why do you find it personally relatable? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, growing up, I grew up in Stetchford and in City, Birmingham. It did feel like a paradise to me. But there was one particular very important thing that I remember quite clearly from my childhood was when I was about seven or eight years old on my road a new swimming baths opened it was a close enough walk that I could go by myself with my brother it was cheap and it was like somebody had opened a butlins at the bottom of our road it absolutely illuminated my everyday experience of where I lived there was adventure play excitement somewhere for us to go and I just realized very early on the things we experience in our neighbourhoods can change our in, in, entire uh, imagination of what could be possible in the future. And and now where I live, I've also seen the opposite. I'm very lucky to live in a, a nice part of Birmingham that has a high street that is dense in infrastructure, that has primary schools within walking distance. And I can see the challenges that are emerging from people and cars and air pollution and children and roads and a dying high street all playing out and also the incredible potential of neighbours being in such close proximity. So, Do you think, Amy, that that background, that, that story is what gives you such such storytelling power? Because I've witnessed it at first hand, just, just how powerful your ideas are, how persuadable or how persuasive you are in terms of your thinking. Is, is it that first hand experience of the neighbourhood and growing up in a very, in a very clear and identifiable neighbourhood setting that, that has really helped you shape the world view that you're now communicating do you think? I think so I think it's a couple of different things so (laughs) I'm very very lucky to grow up in an intergenerational household where my grandparents lived and thus also got to spend a lot of time hearing the stories of my grandparents and being able to travel back to Punjab in India with them and remembering a really really clear story about a place called Gort Ranja which you can google as Court R-A-N-J-A a village in India where my grandmother lived and where there was four or five houses where all the family lived and a a green in the middle where they cooked together and they did all sorts. That early experience and seeing that and then being raised in that intergenerational way and the imagination and possibilities I think afforded to me by my parents who wanted to imagine much better futures for us than they had unfortunately experienced themselves and to take the best of that forward combined with you know living in inner city Birmingham and seeing my own experience of my local neighborhood transformed by just one really simple everyday infrastructure opening on my road and many many other things such as seeing the power of impact of Birmingham seeing the power of TEDx and many others who are galvanizing in communities has made me really passionate that I think we all have different contributions to make. So that is the experience but something I want to put to you is a point made to me by Bill Drayton the Ashoka founder and he said that to be a change maker you have to not only be able to observe but you have to be able to give yourself permission. To what degree did the permission internally, the idea that you could become an activist, what you that you had agency, what was the 
What was the moment where you realized that not only could you actually see the things around you, but you could be an agent of change in, 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 in this situation as well? That's a really interesting question. And actually, I think there's two clear points I can actually point to in my life, actually, where, where those things changed. As I said, I was really lucky to not really have an acute awareness of the things that maybe held us back or the experiences that I had growing up in quite a, a, a poor family. And so there was a always an imaginative playground that my parents and grandparents created where they really allowed us to understand that anything was possible and really worked actively towards that being true for us. So I think I saw that in practice as, you know, many children of immigrants do. But then particularly, I have to say what that led to, which is another real experience of many children of immigrants, is that my parents, with all the tools that they had, could see that through traditional education. So their real important focus for us was be educated, get educated. And so I, you know, was very lucky to 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 study well and but when I came out of university all I had was an understanding of that you get a job and then you move your way up through that and actually that I didn't feel like I had permission I don't if I'm really honest I was quite naive I don't even think I knew who I thought people who set up organizations or did business were I thought they were people who had a product and then sold a product and you know had a corner shop it was really that basic for me and so that there was a particular moment where the world opened up and that was standing in a TEDx in 2013, seeing this incredible galvanizing of people and thinking, wow, we did this. And then a chap called Indy Johar, who's one of the founders of an organization called Project Zero Zero, came and tapped me on my shoulder and said, I've been following you on Twitter. I think you should leave your job and come and work for me. I went to Project Zero Zero somehow listened to this guy and I gave up my job and went there. And suddenly I found this whole cacophony of architects and scientists and historians and geographers and researchers who'd given up industry as was and was were building things like WikiHouse, open source housing, new architecture, all these incredible things. And I was like, so how did they decide they can do this? And India was kind of like, well, they just, they imagined it and they started building it. That, that was the light bulb moment. I suppose the other thing is, and again, I mean, I've, I've heard you speak at first hand on this is that you know you make you made this point that the system is set up to fail everybody who is involved and I suppose on one level you've just been recounting your own personal experiences of it but there's a there's also a big picture analysis that underpins a lot of what you think and and what you talk about which is system failure yeah absolutely So, so explain that to us in terms of how that manifests itself in the neighborhoods that you're you're working in yeah, I mean, like, we've, we've practiced that through loads of different ways and, and thought about that. But let me give you a practical example. So right now, it is well known that um, we need to retrofit a home every five seconds in order to meet the 2030 climate targets, carbon targets. And you can probably imagine that we're not retrofitting a home every five seconds. And so we're way behind in in many different ways about what this looks like. But we also know there's a latent, incredible energy at a neighbourhood scale. We've seen that through COVID-19. We also know the technologies and the ways of ex- of organising exist to create more decentralised, distributed, neighbourhood up approaches to big challenges. We've seen that again through COVID, where we decentralised, where we looked at where agency power organizing lay we were able to tackle challenges in in an incredible way perhaps the vaccination program a mixture of that top down and 
bottom up is an example of that. Now, so we have the technology, we have the understanding, we know what our challenges are. But currently, retrofit programs are largely big, top down, regional, national programs that normally involves a voucher where middle class people can say they'd like to make some updates, woefully out of sync with what we need. But we know that if we organize locally, we can look at supply chains that create jobs, that create skills, that create zero carbon uh, retrofit and homes at a neighborhood level. We know that we can create new green jobs through that. We know that we can upskill through that. We know that we can inspire people that actually the future, these some of these big scary challenges ahead of us are actually in our hands. And we can think about these things in different ways. So for us, there isn't this big split between big picture and local work. I mean, I interviewed um, an academic recently who talks about the brutal gifts of, of COVID, you know, this dreadful global situation, which is also part of a rethink and stimulating a rethink based on partly the evidence of, you know, as you say, community activism, things, things that are actually happening, but also a glimpse of what a more positive future might be. Is, is that realistic or, or is that or is that just dreaming, do you think? No, I, I mean, a brutal gift is probably one, one very good way to describe it. Perhaps us right in this present moment as a generation cannot see that, but in the arc of history and where we're at, there's a, there's a big kind of warning bell that the planet has given us, right? That the ways we have designed our lives, the way we move, the way we do many, many different things that lead to pandemics uh, and the, the knock-on effects, whatever you want to talk about, from how we fund our health infrastructure to how we understand the challenges that we have. This has, I think, been a warning sign for us to absolutely start to deeply rethink how we are designing pretty much everything and how we are understanding the challenges that the future presents. We've had glimpses of what could be possible. I don't think we're, we're necessarily going to fly straight into the next episode of a really inspiring, equitable future. But do I think we are starting to have enough warning signs enough collective consensus and understanding that we are going to have to really change how we do many things. Yes. And therefore, I'm incredibly hopeful about what these signals give to us as a, as a, as a brutal gift. Well, on, on the signals, I mean, you've, you've spoken quite a bit through this interview about climate, but, you know, there are other things that you've been talking about on social media, um, like the Black Lives Matter movement, you speak a lot about poverty in local neighbourhoods as well. When you think about the to-do list that, that, that is there, tell us a little bit about what happens next in, in your view in terms of that equity, that fairness that is so central to the agenda that you, you speak to. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the, the key things is that, yes, there are multiple existential threats whether this is about the need to really hospice an old economic system and usher in a new one whether it be jobs and skills and the deep reskilling needed technology high streets how we live how we work how we re relate to to the planet yeah, there's there's so many different things and i think that it, it within within all of that they are incredibly interdependent. Racial justice is health justice, as the Brilliant Centric Lab talk about jobs and reskilling and the green transition. These are interconnected, the high streets, how we're going to create healthier neighbourhoods. These are interconnected. And so what I think is next is for us to really 
deeply recognize the scale of that challenge to recognize the interdependence and then understand that we're going to need a whole suite of different uh, approaches to this from big picture to the types of work we do in the everyday and connecting all that back up. And, and is that what you meant when cause I used the phrase in the introduction, democracy begins at home. You use that on a, a recent panel event with UCL. Is, is that what this is all about, that it's got to be more grassroots than about big institutions or big government? I mean, is it, does, it, does it begin in a, in a much more personal sense, do you think, in terms of how change happens? Yeah, so I don't tend to like the binaries of it's either this or it's this. I, I certainly think it's going to be all of us. However, in Eric Kleinenberg's book, Palaces of the People, he talks about the paramount importance of neighbourhood social infrastructure so that everyday people have the agency tools and uh, resources at their fingertips to be able to actively participate in building the future and not being victim to it. He talks about the Carnegie libraries in 1600 across America for all the challenges of Carnegie, which I'm not going to go into right now. Um, that was a massive infrastructure play. You know, it was a play at which was about having knowledge at the fingertips of people at, in their neighbourhoods all across the US and, and then Europe. And that access to knowledge created new opportunities. Robert Putnam talks about it in The Upswing. He talks about not a, an idealised time where everything was okay that we can go back to, but times in history where that uprising from the everyday organising of communities and neighbourhoods met institutions and other things. He talks about often the charismatic leaders and presidents and other people we talk about didn't come first. They actually jumped on a train of organising that they saw in other places and were incredible at bringing and weaving that together into big national narratives. So for me, with the challenges we face, I don't want to put these things in in opposition. I want to give them really equal importance and really recognise actually how much, so much of where we need to go is to make sure that communities now and future generations have access to the tools, infrastructure, resources at their fingertips to organise, as well as all the big institutions, policy change, governance, code, rules, regulations we need to, to reinvent as well. And I suppose that that's the sort of, you know, that, that that's a really you know excellent landscaping of the ecosystem and i suppose things i'm sort of thinking about as part of your analysis is where what are the triggers what are the tipping points i mean one of the things i've i've heard you speak about before is, is social entrepreneurship the idea of of enterprise at the heart of some of this thinking Br bring that to life for us in terms of how you see that at, at the neighborhood level yeah absolutely i think i very loosely affiliated with any like one way of thinking thinking about some of this. And so whether it be social enterprise or community business or local independence, I certainly know that what so many of those entities are doing are really taking us into being able to imagine a new economics, a new way in which we might organise our economy. That doesn't, again, pit binaries. There's some things that scale and infrastructure can do. And there's so many that more decentralised, people-led enterprise can do. At the heart of it, whether it's social enterprise, community business, business as we understand it, is a really important key question that I think I'll go back to talking about India earlier. He has always said to me, we need 
need to reinvent the business models of this work. So much of it, say, at the high street level is interlinked to land. So whether it's social enterprise, whether it's community business, whether it's uh, this massive movement of independence and, and work we're starting to see, combined with a kind of refining of the conversations about how we need to evolve our economic models and theories, what they start to do is give us glimpses of the future, reinventing the business models we hold true, putting people and planet in equal, if not unequal, more orientated towards the planet balance and and the experimentation which that takes. I think that takes a lifetime. I don't think we can do it in one iteration. And I think social enterprise has certainly got a big part to play in that. And I, and I suppose that's right. The kind of like the steps rather than the leaps. But I mean, we are speaking at a point in time where we're still living under under a lockdown. And yet the first glimpses of what a life post lockdown have started to become clearer. And I suppose when you look to the signals of thriving neighbourhoods for the future, the things that are going to be really the kind of, I guess, those glimpses that we're getting it right as we emerge out of this. The, the WEF calls it the Great Reset. Some people call it the Rethink. I mean, in terms of actually what should people be thinking about in terms of what happens next and what helps get it right more often? What what are your final thoughts on that, Imi, in terms of the future steps, which now seem so vital for the world in terms of getting it right? Absolutely. I think most immediately let's not underestimate the scale of grief and healing that will be required for so many people it's one of the things i think that will actually if we as a country can understand what it means to come out of this and support the, all the different experiences it will actually lay the groundwork for the type of relationships that we need to to realize uh, this future so i think most immediately there's that and i think there's two big parts i'd say we need to focus on and i'll take the big picture approach to that which is number one we need to be honest about the scale of challenge that we face. We need to listen to maybe some of the worst predictions and temper them with the most imaginative about what the future could be like, but not try and carry on with this hit and hope that, you know, we've got through COVID and that's okay. We have enough historical and future forecasting to really understand where we're heading and approach that on our front foot, imaginatively, creatively, really remember the point that many people say that we live or die by the infrastructures we build. You know, the infrastructure that held us up in this that is buckling and just about surviving the NHS as an example of a post-war infrastructure. Infrastructure doesn't have to just look like that. It can look like many big and small things. And we need to understand what it means to really invest in that. And neighborhood scale, I'm just going to finish by saying I really am going to focus on the combination of hope, imagination, connectivity, small and big business and organizations coming together in ways they never had before, but actually recognizing some really big picture stuff that deepening inequality, cracking infrastructure, a lack of hope and is, is really going to erode our ability to to create this new future. So we've got to be honest with it. We've got to be honest with air pollution levels, private car ownership, inequality and all these things and not just stop there, then start to be really propositional, hopeful, imaginative about what the future could work uh, could be like and then work at that for the rest of the, our time on this planet, basically, because this is generational work. And I think Roman Snarik speaks about this really well, about what it means to be a good ancestor. And I think that's a challenge for our generation. What a, what a great place to conclude this this interview. I mean, ever, ever articulate, ever powerful, Imi. Thank you very much for joining me today. And, and that's all we have time for, for this edition. And a great 
thank you to my guest, Imandeep Kaur, who joins me there telling the story not only of Civic Square, but also about how local neighbourhoods are going to be at the heart of solving global problems. Do join me again next time for the next edition of Changemakers. Changemakers.